So, let's begin. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, welcome to episode three in our series that explores the moment in rock history when the trippy 60s morphed into the glam 70s through the archives of Main Man. What do you want to know about Main Man? Because I am the Main Man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Main Man was a rights management organisation formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries that helped to develop the careers of artists including Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mop the Hoople, Ian Hunter, Mick Ralphs, Dana Gillespie, Amanda Lear, John Mellencamp and David Bowie. I was just writing like there was no tomorrow. I would write often four or five songs a day. I mean, I just couldn't stop. I wouldn't stop. And I didn't really know where any of the writing was going. I mean, I was trying everything I could. I wanted to work in every style. With behind-the-scenes stories from those who lived and breathed the heady excesses of the period, we're taking an evocative walk on the wild side through the Main Man archive. I was actually at Haddon Hall when Lou called and asked David to produce Transformer. And uh, that conversation went on for about an hour, but David was so thrilled, I mean, to be recognised so much that somebody he really admired wanted him to produce the album. In this episode, we're at home in West London with Dana Gillespie, who met David very early on in his career as he was experimenting with a variety of musical styles. Then let's start at the beginning. When were your first musical ambitions? I guess because I thought I was going to be a drummer, I was 11 years old. I'd heard an album by a guy called Sandy Nelson, Let There Be Drums, uh, and I thought, this is it. And I was writing songs from the age of 11, and I went to a very good school around here in Sloan Square, but eventually I went to a stage school in Hyde Park Corner called The Arts Education, and there I really started writing songs, and it was at that time I met Bowie. Which was where? Oh, in the Marquee Club. That was the music place, actually. I'd already been there, and I'd seen the Yardbirds, and I was very interested in the blues. I loved the blues, because before that, all the singers that were ever on television, and there were very few television shows with music... But we had one called Six Five Special and you could hear live music. They were all kind of, nobody ever sweated or, you know, the, this is the first time I'd been to a, a blues club where it was all happening. And it was a very exciting time to be young and growing up in London. And there was David with his band. He pounced onto the stage like a tiger in these knee-length suede fringed boots, a bit like Robin Hood, a bit Sherwood Forest. He had a white baggy shirt on with a waistcoat and this long yellow hair, very yellow hair. And it sounds silly now because everyone's got long hair, but nobody had long hair in those days. The newspapers kept banging on about the Beatles having long hair, but it hardly touched much below their collar. But David was unusual looking with this kind of Veronica Lake hairdo. I think he was supporting the Yardbirds or the Who or something. And when the evening was over, I'm at the back of the marquee brushing my then waist-length hair in the mirror and he comes up and takes the brush out of my hair, carries on brushing and says, can I come home with you tonight? And I said, yes. At that time, I was 
living in South Kensington in that big house and my parents were there so we walked home of course I didn't know where Bromley was which is where he lived I certainly wouldn't have known that there weren't any trains to go there so that might have been his ulterior motive I don't know but at that time I was on the top floor on the fifth floor of the house so we had to walk past my parents bedroom and so he stayed the night in my single bed and the next day the two of us come downstairs and my parents are coming out of their bedroom and I say oh I introduce him and my father told me afterwards that it wasn't until I'd said the name David that he'd realised it was a boy. He just thought I'd had a girlfriend come to stay. So I kind of explained it away. They never made any comment on it. And quite often he'd come and visit me, go to the top floor, where I had my drum kit, some terrible Spanish guitars, but that's what you start with, with nylon strings when you can't afford a decent Martin guitar. And I used to go with him to places like the Green Room, which was the hospitality room of Ready, Steady, Go, which was the TV show then, and he would network. He was very good at networking, and I'd go along there with him sometimes, or we'd land up in Carnaby Street while he goes shopping for things. I was never that bothered about clothes. You know, he'd come over quite a bit, and then I was mercifully relegated to the basement in my parents' house where I could paint it and decorate it any way I liked. So then I really went to town, and he gave me a bass guitar, and I bought a recording machine, very antiquated now, but it was the latest thing. It could overdub. It had two channels. It was a thing called a Vortexian, and had my piano, of course. So music was always the thing that kind of bonded with us. I was not looking to be Mrs. Jones because, hey, I was still young, and both of us had a life to get on with. Um, I always felt sorry for any girls that thought they were going to kind of pin him down because you need your head examined if you want to be Mrs. Bowie. But he wasn't Bowie then, of course. So we would hang out musically, sometimes horizontally, but we were just having fun. And when I was on Ready, Steady, Go, the second time I was on the show, I had to do a song called Love is Strange, originally done by a duo called Mickey and Sylvia, I think. And I mean, even David hummed out the bass line to me that would help me, you know, being... I'd never been in studios before. I used to strum away with about three chords and write these very simple songs. And he always encouraged me, always said, yeah, keep at it. But in between, he was off on the road or he was with the band and they all went off. I think they might have been called the Lower Third by then and they travelled in an ambulance. So I think they slept in an ambulance. He once told me that they shagged in an ambulance too while it was parked in Piccadilly Circus. It was the passion wagon. I mean, that's what bands did, you know. So he was kind of part of my life, floated in and out, but not in boy and girlfriend terms. I'm always rather offended how dare people say to me, well, was he your boyfriend? Well, yeah, he was a boy and he was a friend and we were horizontal sometimes, but that's not what I'd call a boyfriend. That's when you step out together. We've stepped out as mates, as pals on an equal footing, and I always liked that. So he kind of floated in and out of my life. I went to see him perform with Lindsay Kemp. This must have been about 1965 at the Mercury Theatre, a little theatre in Notting Hill Gate that I don't think exists anymore. So we were in each other's pockets musically up to a point, but, you know, he was out pulling birds and doing gigs and I was getting on with my life. And by this time I'd done Ready, Said, Go and 
I had a girlfriend who was going out with Donovan, or I think she knew Donovan, and through that I met Donovan's management, and they were my first managers that I signed with. I'd been given a contract when I was about 14 by Georgia Gomelsky, who ran the Yardbirds, but I didn't sign with them. I think I was too young, or my father looked at it, and somehow it didn't happen. So I was doing my singles. I was signed to Pi Records for various singles, and David was doing his thing, and I never took much notice of what he was doing musically. And when I seen past footage of some of his early films, I realised that I was not aware of what he was doing musically. I mean, I knew about The Laughing Gnome. But then he had his major fling with Hermione and he used to come around and tell me about her. By this time, we were still friends, you know, sometimes a bit more than friends, but that's just how we were all through our relationship, actually, up until 74. Then one time he did call me and he said, you know, I've met somebody I really think you should meet, you'll get on well with her, and that was Angie. And Angie was a very strong influence in his life at that time, just by being there, because she's American, so that reads as loud, so she was loud. But up until then, David had always said to me, you know, you and I both need a decent manager. I could say the same thing for even these days. Where do you find a decent manager or even we can find an indecent one, I suppose. But in those days, it was really hard. I'd had 10 managers and so had Bowie. He'd been through the mill as well. So we had kind of rather parallel existences. We both went at one point to audition for Hair. We both got turned down. You know, we, you need a gig. He did all sorts of things for money, and so did I. You know, I mean, I did all these Hammer films falling out of bits of chamois leather and loads of cleavage. And he did a few bits of filming. And I can't remember what, the order of things, but I do remember him calling up and saying, I've just written a song half an hour ago. I'm coming over. I want to play it to you. And I was there with Gerard Mankovic, actually, the photographer. So we're sitting in the basement over the road and where I was, and he played Space Oddity. So I hadn't realised then what an impact it would make because his earlier stuff had made no impact on me. We used to watch the same things like... The Strange World of Gurney Slade, which nearly nobody except you're my age has ever heard of. But of course, that was Tony Newley. Everyone knows how influenced he was by Tony Newley. And in a way, rightly so, because Newley was fabulous. And he was really unusual. But David's music was not bluesy or funky then. You know, so I wasn't that interested in what he was doing. And he probably wasn't that interested in what I was doing musically, because we were just getting on with our thing. And I'd already by this time done two LPs on Decca and didn't do any of his songs. I was doing my own stuff. So then he called and he said, I think I found the man who should be our manager. And his name is Tony DeFries. So he takes me up to the office off Regent Street. I think it was called Gem or something then. I walked in and saw this largish, almost bear-like fellow, which was Tony DeFries with a lot of fuzzy hair on his head and a beard. I think he probably had a cigar in his mouth because he used to always have a, a cigar, a big one as well, a Monte Cristo or something. And I instantly adored him. I loved the way he spoke. I loved the, his vision. I adored him instantly. And I still do, you know. Nothing has changed, although there's been strange ups and downs in our friendship through the years because of time and distance, but we'll get to that later. So I was at that time in a show called Catch My Soul with 
a singer called PJ Proby and PP Arnold and Jack Good played Othello. It was a rock version of Othello. And I was having a great time doing it because it was at the Prince of Wales Theatre, but it was earlier, it was before that at the Roundhouse. And I had a contract with Jack Good and his agent. And there I meet De Vries and I know this is the manager I want. I've always had a soft spot for a nice Jewish man who'll put his hands on your shoulder and say to you, there, there, let me take care of this problem. And that is basically what de Vries was. He took care of all our problems. I always think he was the perfect facilitator because, certainly in my case, but definitely in Bowie's case, he allowed us the freedom to explore and create without any, certainly, financial restrictions. I mean, what a boon that was. You know, suddenly you got musicians. Okay, peanuts, they're getting paid, but by this time David and Angie are living in Haddon Hall, which sadly has been bulldozed down, but it was this huge, weird, great big room with a minstrels gallery where the spiders from Mars were sleeping on mattresses or blow-up things, and this one room at the side, which was where David and Angie were, and David would usually be sitting on the bed writing or, you know, but it was just relaxing. So De Vries and I used to go down every weekend because I was either in a show and then eventually I became the first Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar, so my evenings were gone, but I'd drive with De Vries down there on a Sunday and we'd hang out on a Sunday nearly every weekend with David and Ange. David would sit on the bed. This is the only time really you'd see David in a T-shirt and jeans because, as I've always said, he, he never was a slouch. When he went out, he was on parade. But he'd sit there surrounded by scraps of paper and things, writing songs, and he'd always have a guitar sitting on the bed. And we might be hanging out. Well, Angie was brilliant. I've always said also that you give Angie a carrot, a potato and an onion, and she'd make enough food for everyone to eat. She was really creative. I mean, she went to a great school. She was well-educated. She went to a finishing school in Switzerland and, you know, spoke fluent French and was very sassy and on the ball. So she held things together in the household and the kitchen was the size of a postage stamp. But the bedroom is where he did his creating, hanging in there. And then he'd come out into the main room where the other guys were and that's where the songs would carry on. So I was around when all the sort of, oh, you pretty things. And then when Angie had, uh, well, he was then Zoe, which then morphed into Joey. And now, of course, you know, it's Duncan Jones. Then David was writing things like Cooks, and all these songs were being written that are relevant to what was going around. Plus, of course, he had the joy of working with Ronson then. He'd found Ronson. It's a well-known story, so I won't bang on about it. When Rono was there, his simple view on life was very, very refreshing, actually. So I would be seeing what was happening with the birth of Main Man. I mean, it was an idea that came from De Vries, the logo, the lifestyle. De Vries had always said from the very beginning, if you want to have a first-class life, you have to move first-class. He insisted that all of us had assistants, personal assistants, which was great. I'd never had a PA before in my life, so I picked a girl who had been with me in Catch My Soul, Sandra. She was then Sandra Wood. And later on, actually, after she worked for me with for De Vries, main man, I mean, she then married the guy that looked after the Eurythmics and she became Annie Lennox's personal assistant. We all suddenly had PAs each and Angie was rushing around. 
in Haddon Hall, there wasn't much actual money floating around and I still had to finish my year's contract in Superstar. So David had written this song for me called Andy Warhol. Not quite sure why he wrote it for me, but he said he did, so I accepted that. And he has said he did as well on some radio show. I think it was on the John Peel show. And I'd gone with him and I was doing backing singing in the John Peel show. And I was actually later on singing on It Ain't Easy on the Ziggy Stardust album. Everything was always organised marvellously with De Vries. He just took care of everything. If you needed something, if you wanted a rehearsal room... You could say, I've written a song, I must have a keyboards, I must have this or that, or I need to go somewhere. He facilitated it. I mean, this was incredible. Both of us, Bowie and I, at the time, did not mind that we signed what some would have said our life away in a contract. Because if somebody's going to come along and say, let me take care of this, let me get for you what you need in order to create and grow, I will deal with all this shit because... No musician wants to deal with the paperwork and things. And to get a record deal, we signed away happily. And in June 1971, you went with David to the Glastonbury Festival. Strangely enough, I was talking with De Vries about this. I remember Angie being with us and he said, no, surely not, she can't have been with us. Definitely David and I were in the train, but I think Angie was there too, going down by train and realising that where the train stop stopped, it was actually about two miles from where the festival was. So we had to walk. There was nobody to pick us up. And David was in wide Oxford bags. He was meant to go on, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon. De Vries had wisely, he reminded me of this, wisely booked a hotel room in a nearby village or something. But I don't know where he was on the train. I don't think he was on the train. I think he might have come down separately. So walked to the gig carrying the guitar. Then there was a lot of sort of hanging about. And it was, of course, the first year of Glastonbury and the first time that the big silver pyramid had gone up. I knew quite a lot of the people who were backstage managers of like Hawkwind and kind of various trippy bands that were playing. Everyone on the side of the stage was on acid. I mean, they were all having a great time. David, I've never known him as being a big psychedelic. I mean, he once told me he tried it once and didn't really like it. So it got very untogether. He was meant to be on early. Each band overwent their timings, as bands do, unless you run a real tight ship. And everyone was having far good a time. And there was probably some technical issues, too, so that they were saying, oh, well, you know, we can't get you on tonight. So he had to stick around. We all stuck around. I think I might have gone back to the hotel with the freeze for a while and then came back. But, you know, one needed a bath in this thing. And so he went on at about five in the morning, I think it was. And I do have this memory of him coming out onto the stage. <laughs> Everyone else was completely wasted and started singing. And I seem to remember he was singing The Sun Machine is Coming Down, We're Going to Have a Party. Yeah, yeah. But that might have been a bit of a artistic license because people were coming out of their tents listening to this, you know, solo guitar at that hour. I mean, folk was still in and Bowie and myself always played 12-string guitars because... It makes a fatter noise. And in my case, if you're not the greatest guitarist in the world, you've got a 12-string, it sounds like it's double bubble, double the noise. So that's, I think, what David had too. I don't know how many people actually heard him that morning because they 
obviously were wasted and had had a late night, but there were people crawling out of the tents to listen to him. That's Dana Gillespie reliving her first visit to Glastonbury with David Bowie in 1971. Please hit subscribe to make sure the next episode of The Main Man Story arrives via your chosen podcast provider, and you can also check out the other episodes in the series. And the Main Man website has an ever-growing archive of amazing memorabilia, a lot of it published for the first time, including photographs from Dana taken during the events that she talked about in this episode. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.